Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Read Smart podcast, which is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Now, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the rise of artificial intelligence and its potential impacts on nonfiction writing and publishing. I'm delighted to be joined by two guests who are both very familiar with uh, the Bailey Gifford Prize, Hannah Fry, who was shortlisted in 2018 for Hello World, How to Be Human in the Age of the Machine, and Simon Ings, longlisted in 2016 for Stalin and the Scientists and is on this year's judging panel. Welcome to you both. We are recording this remotely uh, in the age of coronavirus. Um, I just want to welcome both of you for taking part. Let's start by uh, perhaps Hannah Fry with you, getting you to explain to us what artificial intelligence is and how it has over time crept into everyday life to the point where many of us are probably not even aware of the way in which it uh, is, the way in which we are used and the way it uses us. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a, an important point. Um, okay, so I think that artificial intelligence, uh, the definition of it changes depending on who you ask. So uh, I think that the, for me, um, and I think that broadly speaking, lots of um, lots of people right now would say that uh, artificial intelligence is where you get a machine to uh, to learn something about its surroundings or about data and to create decisions based on that learning. Um, So for instance, if I've got a light bulb in my house that's like a super smart light bulb that's connected to the internet, if I can program that light bulb to say, you know, come on at 7 p.m. and dim slightly at 9 p.m. and turn itself off at 11 p.m., that's that's just an algorithm, right? That's just a standard algorithm. Whereas if that light bulb learns what I like, learns that I tend to come home at quarter past seven and I like to have the lights dimmed at around nine o'clock when I'm doing my reading and that I go to bed at 11. If it's the if it's the algorithm itself that's learning that about my behavior, that is artificial intelligence. Um, I said that it, it changes depending on who you ask because there are um, some of the much more old school researchers in artificial intelligence, and this is a subject that has been around for a number of decades, um, who would say that essentially any time that uh, a, a, a machine or an entity that is not human, a created entity that's not human, is making a decision, then that counts as an artificially intelligent system. So uh, it's a kind of slightly different definition. But I think broadly speaking, the way that people use the phrase now is to mean, uh, is to mean something that encapsulates learning within a machine. Um, in terms of how much of it's, it's in, infiltrated our lives, I mean, I think that it's just, um, I think over the last decade, there's just been an absolute explosion in this stuff. I think um, as soon as we started carrying devices that could record data on where we were, who we were talking to, what we were doing, what we were interested in, um, we, I mean, that was really the, the starting point for um, exploiting that data, uh, sometimes in, in very good ways and sometimes perhaps in uh, slightly more troubling ways, uh, to understand how people are behaving, to understand what they're going to do next, um, and then to use that information to, uh, to to make decisions on that basis. 
Simon Ings, to, to, to what extent does uh, the way in which AI has infiltrated our lives concern you? Because for, for, for my part, you know, I, I quite like the idea of be, having movies suggested uh, for me or uh, a new song that I might want to listen to. But, but the idea of uh, being able to record everything that I put in online um, uh, in a way that might be slightly more malign, that, that does bother me. How much does it concern you? I change with the wind over this question, <laughs> actually. Uh, I wake up in the morning uh, thinking, what what shall I watch tonight? Or, or what, what piece of uh, music shall I listen to? And uh, Spotify makes its suggestions. And I'm in, uh, extremely comfortable in an environment when I, where I have uh, virtual assistants at my beck and call, uh, making my life even more perfect than it is already. And then I look to developments, I mean, uh, particularly in China at the moment with its development of the social credit score, but actually the same technologies are being rolled out here and in the United States and across the Western Hemisphere anyway. And it concerns me that within an environment that becomes conscious of what we are doing and makes judgments about what we are doing, those systems will come and go and be adapted and be useful or not useful. What matters is the fact that we know that we're being surveilled means that we start to self-police. So I'm more worried, I suppose, about the human behaviours around the idea of artificial intelligence than I'm worried about the machines themselves. Hannah Fry, does that resonate with you too? Yeah, I think so. I think that the key point um, that Simon picked up on there is about when decisions are made uh, about us or on our behalves based on uh, based on what's you know what our data has, has said. So the, the the social credit score, for example, um, in uh, in China is that uh, I mean everything you do online, right? Like if you're playing games online for ten hours. Um, uh, that might indicate what kind of a citizen you are or the things that you're buying. You know, if you're buying nappies, that might indicate that you're a parent and therefore responsible. Um, you know, whereas uh, if you're jaywalking, perhaps when you uh, when you go out, uh, that might, you know, give you a slightly more negative score. And I think that um, we have to be sensible about what happens in, in, in Western democracies, because, I mean, we, as, you know, as Simon mentioned, this is not completely alien. We, we have credit scoring systems too, right? You can be denied a mortgage because of something that happened that you're not even really totally sure of. There's not complete transparency. Um, about uh, either. Um, the thing that really starts to, to worry me, that, to, that starts to trouble me about this, is uh, is what those scores are then used for. So uh, in China, for instance, these scores are then used to decide what visas you might be entitled to. Um, there is, I believe, uh, some talk about a particular lane at the airport that you can use. I mean, presumably when flights are back up and running, um, but a particular lane at the airport that you can use if you're a particularly good citizen. Um, and it's all very, very Black Mirror, very kind of Charlie Brooker. Um, and that, I think, is where things start to trouble me, because uh, the thing about these systems is that as impressive as they appear on the surface, as uh, brilliantly slick and sophisticated they might look, they are also always capable of making mistakes. And I think that when you start to put flawed machines in positions of power without thinking very carefully about what happens when something goes wrong, I think that really is a recipe for disaster. So, so for example, in the current climate in which we are all uh, trying to get used to, the idea of uh, a health app which is going to help 
the um, the societies all over the world get back to uh, some semblance of what they were like before the coronavirus, that there are many people, for example, the app is up and running in Australia, there are many people who are arguing, including scientists, saying that I don't want to sign up to this app because the data that is being asked of me, there are not enough guarantees that that data will be secure. So even in the context of health, that's something that feels as though it is um, potentially designed to control us. Simon Ings, you know, that, mm. that does seem to be the kind of the, 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 the crux of that relationship between the use of our data and our trust in who is using it. I think that some of the more radical boosterish um, statements that have been made over the last few years about how we have to redefine or even abandon old notions of privacy are, alas, accurate and true and inevitable. Were I to take your mobile phone and look at the apps on your on your smartphone, uh, and were I to take a dozen people and look at the apps and how they are arranged on the screens of their smartphones, you could anonymize the data of who owned which particular smartphone and quite simply with a piece of paper with a dozen people I could work out whose phone belongs to which individual. In the same way even when you anonymize medical data because there are sufficient dimensions of data in the data set it would be relatively easy given access to all the data to zone in on one individual to spot that one individual that had that one unique pattern of data. The old notion that we can take data and anonymize it and maintain our privacy is blown now, because as is the example, as the health app is a very good example of this, you can gain so much more information, the more dimensions of information you're given, you can get so much more insight into a problem, the more dimensions of information you are given. So we will be abandoning certain aspects of our privacy in order to gain the benefits of, for example, the health app. And I think we have to be both calm and uh, perspicacious <laughs> around every instantiation of this problem. And of course, now there are artificially intelligent systems assisting you to maintain your privacy. These apps do exist and they are rolling out now. So we're entering a very peculiar environment and it's quite hard not to become quite reactive and quite Luddite about this technology. And indeed, um, you know, Luddism is an option for a while. It will still be possible to turn these machines off, but it's becoming increasingly difficult. That, that's interesting that, that you think there is still space to to reject this kind of technology. Hannah Fry, how prevalent is it that people, I mean, I work with a couple of very young producers who have only really known uh, computers and technology, uh, you know, they're, tw they're in their 20s, right? So that's all they know. And one, one said to me the other day, I never, ever accept cookies on a website. I don't want anyone to know who I am, how I'm using the internet. And he has done everything he can to resist inputting data about himself. I wonder how prevalent that is as an attitude. 
<laughs> I mean, I kind of agree, right? The, the extraordinary efforts that you need to go to to, to 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 remain untracked are actually, I mean, they're 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 really difficult. I once, um, when I was researching for my book, I went to something called a crypto party, which um, which sounds a lot more fun than it is. <laughs> 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 I mean, you've got these images in your mind, but throw them all away because it's essentially a group of people uh, who will tell you how to remain anonymous online. Um, and the lengths that they go to are absolutely extraordinary. So, okay, obviously things like having ad blockers and rejecting cookies and all of the things that, you know, us mere mortals might do. But even things like, you know, using uh, using the dark web to communicate. Um, there is even one person who was advocating having an entire operating system, like a whole computer hidden within a USB drive that you plug into your machine, you, you boot up from nothing, you create a whole brand new, fresh operating system, do whatever you want to do. And then as you pull the USB away, everything disappears. And I couldn't help but think in that situation, I just couldn't help but think, uh, <laughs> I mean, these are extraordinary lengths to go to. And I couldn't help but look around me at the other people who are at this crypto party and think, what is it that you all have to hide? Um, what is it that you're that you're so, that, um, that so is afraid so of? That's fascinating. I mean, Simon Ng's the opposite of all of that, of course, is is just general instinctive human behavior, the tendency that we have to overtrust anything that we don't understand. And if we don't understand how AI works, our tendency may well be to allow others to interpret it for us. Well, this goes back to the very heart of um, the vocabulary that we use around artificial intelligence. I'm thinking of the paper written by Werner Vinge, a science fiction writer in 1993. And he came up not just with one version of what's called the singularity, the idea that machines will one day take over because they have become super intelligent, more intelligent than people, so they can run civilization without us. He came up with not one version of this scenario, but two. And the one that everyone talks about is the one in which the computers become gods. Because frankly, we find it easier to talk about gods than we find it to talk about machines that think. We immediately reach for theological explanations or transactional explanations or anthrop uh, anthropocentric explanations of everything around us. So the idea that a computer could become a god is relatively easy to parse. But what's interesting about that paper is that Werner Vinge came up with a completely different version of how the computers could take over. And that is the version that is very clearly rolling out now, that is in fact already happened. And that is the point at which we roll over and do what the machines say, because the machines are just interactive enough that we feel comfortable with them. And every time I walk into an office and I see people glued to their desks communicating with Slack, I'm thinking, Werner, you were right. And it's already <laughs> happened uh, about 18 months ago, in fact. Hannah Fry, let's talk about uh, the the ability of AI to, uh, to create uh, in the context of uh, of art. In in your book, you deal with this uh, in, in such an interesting way. And I'm sure Simon's got interesting things to say about this too. Uh, just Let's just talk about the, the, the idea of uh, artificial intelligence being used to, to create works of art and notions of beauty in the context of artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think when it comes to creating 
um, works of art, there are two things that you are hoping for. You're hoping for originality um, and you're hoping for something that is good. Now, original is actually quite easy. I mean, you can just, <laughs> it's very easy to sort of randomize. I mean, let's say we're talking about music here, for instance. Let's say uh, you just uh, set up a little computer algorithm that will randomize notes. And it's very easy to come up with something that no one has ever heard before, uh, that has never existed before. Very easy. Uh, making it so that it's good, actually, is much harder. Um, uh, if you want to make something that's good, what you have to do is have some idea of what it means to be good. And as it stands, the only definition of good that you can create is uh, based on what's gone before. So there have been lots of different algorithms that have been created that are uh, trained to recognize certain patterns that we have previously found pleasing um, and to, uh, to generate random sets of notes that tend towards those patterns, if you like, that tend towards uh, something that we uh, know that people have liked before, something that has the sort of shape of, of things that people uh, have liked before. Um, and that's all very well. And I think that, you know, that there are some companies uh, who are doing this very successfully, creating sort of background music for YouTube videos that don't uh, infringe on copyright, creating sort of elevator music, that kind of, that kind of stuff. In terms of the really um, attention-grabbing music, in terms of the music that really makes the whole world sort of sit up and pay attention and really makes you feel something, on that point, I think that we are, if not very far away from creating artificial intelligence that's capable of doing that, I wonder if it will ever be possible. And the reason for that is because it's at that intersection between original and good. You want something to be original and you want it to be good. But if your only measure of what's good is based on what's come before, then you are essentially shutting the door for all of the, uh, you know, all of the completely original music, all of the, you know, you're shutting the door to Elvis Presley, you're shutting the door for, uh, I don't know, John Lennon, you're shutting the door to anyone who, who is a, a groundbreaker. Um, and I think that that really is the key reason why AI art really struggles. Simon Ings, you're a, a novelist yeah. and a science writer. What do, what, do, what do you make yes. of what you just heard? Um, I very much and strongly agree. But on the back of that, I can mention a couple of works of um, AI art, which were quite extraordinary and successful and beautiful, but don't actually contradict anything that Hannah has said. And the one that springs immediately to mind was an exhibition in the, at the Serpentine, uh, I think a couple of years ago now, by Pierre Huig. Uh, and this was based on some Japanese research into visual processing, in which uh, a generative uh, adversarial network, an AI, basically, if you, if, if you want to be loose in your terminology, is given a data set of paintings and then is shown novel scenes that it can only interpret according to the data set that it's been trained on. So this digital, these there were several digital canvases in the exhibition and each digital canvases would be struggling to interpret an, an unfamiliar image in a way that would fit its data set. The result of that was to create a canvas that shimmered in such a way that you began to understand how you yourself approach art. You know that when we look at paintings, very few of us look at a painting for more time than it takes to look at a Twitter, uh, a, a Twitter message. Um, 
when we look at a painting, we catch a few details, and then after a while, you might actually begin to notice the pattern of shadows, the figure in the corner, the uh, dimensions, and so on. And these canvases were actually reflecting in real time a kind of visual analogue of that process. And you came away from that exhibition thinking, I think I've begun to understand how I look at pictures. Now, the reason it doesn't contradict anything that, that Hadra said is that, in a way, it's simply reflecting back on you the culture of going to galleries. In itself, it's nothing. In itself, it's just a shimmering mess. It's only because you've got that huge culture at your back that you begin to interpret this material in valid and exciting ways. I have, I think intelligence is a terribly sticky word uh, when we talk about AI. And uh, when we talk about intelligence in human times, we're factoring in so much that's actually about culture and about history and about expectation. The idea that some anything could come along and rival a human at anything is formal nonsense. It'll only rival us if we allow it to rival us rather in the way that uh, chess computers work. Chess computers uh, win at chess games. What have they done? They've encouraged us to play chess. I see no reason why other aspects of AI entering into our creative uh, or or, or ludic behaviours won't do exactly the same thing. They'll simply encourage us to write, encourage us to play chess, encourage us to paint pictures. Hannah Fry, what what do you make of that? Oh, it's an interesting idea, actually. I mean, I, I do agree that um, I think the most interesting part of all of this is that human-machine interface. It's not... I, I think that when you look at the machine in, in isolation, uh, there are certain stories to tell. But I think when you're thinking about the future of AI, it's a, a story that, that humans are totally and completely embedded in. Um, and I really like that idea of, you know, going to the gallery and, and bringing all your knowledge of human <laughs> culture and all your, yeah. all your history of existence with yeah. you. I think that's a really, really important point, actually. Um, I also kind of like that idea. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but I like the idea of um, the more, uh, the smarter the machines get, the more they encourage us to do things. And I was thinking actually in terms of spreadsheets, which is not really very artistic. But okay, so, so I mean, I think you're probably right. You know, the invention of Excel meant that we ended up doing more calculations, not less. The invention of Microsoft Word meant that we ended up doing more writing, not less. So, you know, I think I probably buy that. Well, let's. I mean, I want to explore this a little more because Hannah Fry, you just said that you know that the, the interface between humans and and the machines, that that the idea that that um, you you use the word embedded, and I and I want to explore the idea of the extent to which human beings who have created these codings um, are in control of them, because of course we have this idea in you know propagated in Hollywood and, and and science fiction novels and so on, that that the machines will take over. So so let's talk a little bit about that, the, the, the way in which we navigate that relationship. You know, uh, uh, is it an embedded relationship or is it one in which which one is is potentially likely to overcome the other? Simon Ings, let's start with you. Well, um, I think I've... Um... 
um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to go back to the lovely Fern of Finch. It is very hard to avoid in this conversation because uh, he came up with such uh, extraordinary uh, millennial visions of the future and, uh, and not just one but two. And we seem either to fall into the one or into the other. Uh, getting the balance right is quite difficult. I think the big problem is self-surveillance and self-policing. Uh, we enculturate ourselves. We are essentially a self-domesticated animal. We learn we're all desperate to be good people and we learn from our social and cultural context what it is to be good in the particular societies we are in. And there are some broad strokes of good behaviour that cross more or less every society, but in general it's a, it's, it's a constructed medium. The moment you introduce a machine that cannot imagine the future then you've got a bit of a problem because you're essentially freezing your social, cultural, political setup and keeping it as that same thing into the future. And I think that's a, I think that's a serious problem. So much of talk about artificial intelligence says that it's preparing us for the future. It's not preparing us for the future. It's preventing the future. It's making the future redundant. It's allowing us to do the same things over and over and over and over again. My concern is not that the robots will take over our lives, but that we ourselves will start to behave in a robotic manner because we are creating a culture that embraces repetition over innovation. Hannah Fry, you said in your book that the future doesn't happen, we create it. So so in the context of what Simon has just outlined, that vision that he's just outlined, the potential for for the lack of innovation, what 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 do you think can be done to to change that? I mean, because what we're talking about is regulation of of algorithms, isn't it? Uh, yeah, certainly when I was writing that line, that was what I was talking about. I'm just thinking I really like that. I really like what Simon just said there about um, artificial intelligences are machines that cannot imagine the future. And I think I'm going to twist it slightly, if I may, um, because because uh, I think I thoroughly agree with it. But I think even much shorter uh, term future, I think that artificial intelligence cannot imagine it. So one of the things I, I was talking about in the book, and I think I mean this especially in terms of um, the human machine interface, right, where you're working alongside the machine. I think one of the examples I give in the book is about um, is about uh, sat nav, right? And uh, how you know we always see be able to read maps, blah blah blah. Um, and now we're in this situation where you go in your car, you pop it in your sat nav, and it just tells you what to do, and you become very robotic, as Simon said. Um, but the problem with that is because these machines cannot imagine into the future, cannot imagine you taking that journey. That's really where the problem comes. So uh, I don't think this one's in the book, but one of my favourite ever stories. Uh, in in a way to laugh at the people rather than with them is um, there was some uh, Japanese tourists who were in Brisbane and wanted to visit um, a very popular tourist destination just uh, off an island off the coast of Brisbane um, and they put it in their sat nav and the sat nav uh, essentially just said drive straight over the ocean right um, and you think you think you clearly not able to imagine the problems that might come with that um, and you would imagine right that like okay these these tourists okay you know they're not from the area they spotted they didn't they didn't spot the big clue that the word island appeared in the name of the place they were trying to drive to fine but you would think that once it came to actually trying to drive on water they would know it was time to overrule their machine um <laughs> It turns out they didn't, and they got, I think, something like 300 metres out into the ocean before they had to abandon their vehicle. Um, just before, oh I should add, 
an actual ferry uh, sailed past Vanga. <laughs> um, but I think what's what for me, what's really interesting about that. Okay, so for starters, I think it's that the machine cannot imagine the human, uh, the human living through that future that it's suggesting. But I also think what's really important about that is that interface between the human and machine and ultimately who gets to decide the way ahead. Because I think that this is something that was flawed about satnavs that we had a few years ago, certainly. You would put in your details and it would say, off you go, drive. Whereas now the ones that we have have tried to work around this problem, knowing the flaws that humans have, knowing our tendency to just blindly follow in the instructions of machine. And so instead now we'll give you a map with three different options and the ultimate arbiter of the decision is the human uh, rather than the machine. And I think that when we're talking about designing our future and that interface between humans and machines, I think that that is so important. It's not just about recognizing the potential pitfalls of the machines, I think it's also about acknowledging and recognizing the inevitable flaws in humans too. Yeah, absolutely. Simon Ings, I mean, yeah, that that just feels like it just makes so much sense to me um, that, you know, the idea that that, that somehow the machine can be perfect. uh, I mean, we have to, we have to ask ourselves when we think about the, the, the dangers or the pitfalls in, in, um, in handing over your diagnosis uh, in a medical setting to a machine as opposed to a doctor, because both are flawed. Oh, I would definitely trust the machine. I would absolutely (laughs) trust the machine with my medical diagnosis 100% of the time. Absolutely. Because the machine can handle a data set infinitely larger than any talented, brilliant, dedicated human being. The brilliant, talented, dedicated human being is left in the dust by those systems. And I can give you um, a terrible um, uh, anecdotal example, uh, which has to come with a massive health warning of don't try this at home. Uh, My son (laughs) years ago was diagnosed with an unbelievably rare form of uh, leukemia. The human researcher, the human uh, consultant, naturally and correctly, absolutely correctly, went through all the common forms of leukaemia it might be that my son might be suffering from. Meanwhile, my brother-in-law, who, let us just say, has no medical experience, and I was putting it mildly, went on, yes, the internet and spotted the unbelievably rare and thankfully self-correcting condition that my son actually had. And the consultant in question was an absolute charmer and used some really quite unrepeatable words about the internet, uh, saying that, you know, he he saw his own, um, uh, you know, he saw the end of his career looming thanks to the uh, um, expletive, expletive internet. Um, <laughs> the, the problem with that is that uh, we have these machines that can do incredible things. And then we assume that every machine always does incredible things. And because we're a social animal, we develop incredibly quickly behaviours and hierarchies around quite mistaken notions of what things can do. I remember we were on holiday and we had driven to a hill in Spain. And I had been already on top of this hill and had driven around and noticed that this thing that looked like a road was actually just a path and I'd walked it. Okay, you know, whatever. We go for a meal in the restaurant and we start to drive away and the sat-nav tells me to drive down this road that's not actually a road, that is a footpath. And 
my the same brother-in-law says I'm divorced by the way uh the same brother-in-law says uh let's go down this road and I say no it's a footpath and he says no but the satnav says it's a road and I say yeah I know but I've walked it it's a footpath and he proceeds to argue with me and we end up shouting because the satnav says it's a road and you think this is not the machine's fault but if we insane monkeys are going to agitate and create hierarchies out of how much we trust our systems we're lost we have really really lost and in dreadful trouble um one of the things that computer systems can do is to de-skill you people used to be able to reverse park with relative ease then some bright spark decided to put a camera in the back of your vehicle to help <laughs> you reverse park now nobody can reverse park and that's because we're very very good at establishing temporary or even indeed permanent hierarchies between each other but thinking is unbelievably expensive and we will do everything in our power not to think if i were to give you a tray of colored shapes and ask you and and hand you a tray uh, in which those pieces were disorganized and ask you to arrange them you would look from tray to tray matching first position then shape then color because it is cheaper to move your eyes from one place to another than to remember three things at once thinking is really quite painful for any biological system is unbelievably expensive which is why we love our machines the problem is is that we love them so much we we actually don't think about what they can really do Hannah Fry the last word to you i mean do, do, it, it, i i'm assuming that your view would be that the 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 perfect combination is is the the human and the ai machine working together yeah yeah i mean i i do think that i think um uh, because uh, while I absolutely agree with everything that Simon just said there about um, the machines being able to handle data sets better, I mean, there was an incredible paper out last week about uh, the, the, uh, the Google Health, the DeepMind team um, and UCL and Moorfield's team. Um, the AI that they've just constructed, it, it, it can not only diagnose the potential diseases that are in your eye right now. It's, it's, I mean, it's already surpassed doctors at being able to look at those photographs at the back of your eye and make a diagnosis. It can also project forwards for six months of the progression of those diseases in your eye to see who really urgently needs, needs help. Right? I mean, this stuff is really amazing. It's really impressive. I think the only thing I would say is that uh, even so, I'm still not of the camp of like, let's just sign over to the machines. Um, because I mean, of the points that we've already raised here, I, I think that there are subtle issues with this that aren't always necessarily uh, completely apparent. So if I just give you the example of um, diagnosis of breast cancer, for instance. So um, the machines that we have now are, you know, as we've all heard in the news and so on, are incredibly good at picking up on even the tiniest, tiniest hint of uh, cancerous cells within your tissue. Um, and they're really amazing at that, really amazing at that. Uh, the thing is, is that something like cancer, uh, particularly breast cancer, it's actually not a binary problem. So sure, you have uh, no cancerous cells whatsoever, perfectly normal tissue. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got horribly nasty, dangerous cancer that definitely needs to be removed. But there is actually an entire spectrum uh, sitting in between. Often, actually, 
people can have cancerous cells in their body that the body just deals with itself naturally um, that doesn't need to be uh, that doesn't need to be addressed it's very difficult to know which way it's going to go um, uh, when you when you spot them but uh, actually often people have cancers that do, that end up not being something you need to worry about so let's imagine in the thought experiment we have this incredibly amazing diagnostic machine um, and we decide to scan every single woman in the entire country and to uh, assess all of their tissue, we would find an enormous number of women with cancerous uh, cells within their body. The question is then, okay, now what do you do? Because all of these women, some of them, the cancer will go on to be a problem. Many of them, it won't. But do you do double mastectomies on everyone who, who, the, who the machine flags? It's just, you know, you don't want to unnecessarily cause life-changing uh, traumatic surgeries uh, or, or ha- insist on life-changing traumatic surgeries uh, for women where that's not necessary. And so I just think that there are these, these layers of subtlety, these layers of complication that mean that even when you have superhuman diagnostic abilities within the machine, that's still not enough to just say, there we go, let's sign it over, job done. Well, I would say layers of subtlety and complexity pretty much sum up the discussion that we have just had. My enormous thanks to Hannah Fry and Simon Ings for that. That's it for today. Do join us next time when we'll be discussing the unique challenges that come with writing biographies. You can follow this year's prize. Look out for the eagerly anticipated long list, which will be announced in September, followed by the short list in October. Simon, I suspect, is reading furiously. The winner of the 2020 prize will be revealed on the 19th of November during an announcement which will be generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. And to keep up to date with the latest news about the Bailey Gifford Prize, sign up to the newsletter through the website and follow at Bailey Gifford Prize on Facebook and Instagram and at BG Prize on Twitter. As always, thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their continued support for this podcast, which has been produced fully remotely during lockdown restrictions. See you next time. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.